This episode is brought to you by Morty, Buzzshot, Cogs, and Patreon supporters like you. Cogs by Clockwork Dog is an easy-to-use platform for running interactive events, specializing in escape rooms. They have plug-and-play hardware that seamlessly integrates with their software, so you can create a show with lighting and sound cues, all without having to write a single line of code. Map different kinds of inputs and outputs by building up simple logic steps which determine what you want to happen and when. If you're new to immersive tech, COGS is perfect for you. Using simple building blocks, you can create any kind of puzzle in the software and their system will tell the hardware exactly what to do. And if you're a seasoned maker, they have an abundance of tools to expand your capabilities. Create any form of logic by using their expression language. Build your own plugins for external software or hardware and create your own custom content for screens for things like touchscreen gaming. The COG starter set is normally valued at $257, but our listeners can get the starter set today for only $130 with free shipping to the US. You can learn more and purchase your COGS starter set at COGS.show. Use code REPOD at checkout. That's R-E-P-O-D. Link and details in the show notes. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is Eric Wastel, founder of Advent of Code. Since 2015, Eric has been creating an overwhelmingly popular programming puzzle advent calendar. This year, it is entering its ninth year. Welcome, Eric. Is it ninth? (laughs) That's terrifying. I lose count. We're thrilled to have you here. David has been telling me about this. Now, I am not a programmer. I know next to nothing about this. So for any of our listeners who feel like you might be a little bit lost because you're not a programmer, I got you. Okay, I'll make sure to try to clarify on any questions. But yeah, this is a hugely popular event. Let me just support that a little bit. I have people that solve the puzzles in Microsoft Word using like the word count tool. Lots of people do it in Excel. We routinely get pictures of people that have graph paper covering their living room that have worked it all out in pencil and paper. It's targeted at programmers. It's meant to help people become better, but you don't have to be, right? It's also sort of a gateway drug to becoming a programmer. So like fair warning, but yeah, not just programmers. Absolutely. I have so many questions already just from those examples, but we'll get there in a little bit. (laughs) We will get there, but we're going to keep this real approachable. And this is a really interesting and different branch of the puzzling world that I only learned about because of Kate Wastel. Observant listeners might recognize Eric's last name because he is the husband of the ever-brilliant Kate, who writes for Room Escape Artist, advises our business, and is the producer of Recon Los Angeles 24. Get your tickets now. (laughs) She was also like the emotional support human for me during it and helped make sure that I stayed fed and watered and all of that while I was hosting. (laughs) You got to water your host. She helps me with those things as well. Yeah, Kate's amazing. We're very grateful. (laughs) All right, let's just start at the beginning. What exactly is Advent of Code? 
So Advent of Code is a combination of Advent calendars and programming puzzles. Some people celebrate Christmas. If you celebrate Christmas, you might be familiar with a thing called an Advent calendar. An Advent calendar is basically a way to count down to Christmas. It's uh, typically like a box of treats or toys or little ornaments that you hang up or something. But you don't access them all at once. You only access one per day. So if it's a box, the box has 25 doors on it. If it's a little like tree with ornaments or something, there's 25 pouches and you only to, so you count down to Christmas one per day. Unless it's chocolate and you have no self-control. That's true. Yeah. At which point it's counting down until diabetes, which is also fine. <laughs> so you have an advent calendar, which is a thing with 25 something in it, and you're counting down until Christmas. In this case, advent of code is an advent calendar, but it contains programming puzzles. It's usually a question about, like, you know, you need to save Christmas, and in order to do so, the elves need to figure out how many widgets have to go in each of these stacks, and you figure out how many widgets, and you type in the number, and it's like, good job, you figured out how many widgets, go in the stack, you win. And then every puzzle has a part two, and part two is usually, ah, but now the widgets are six feet tall and made of marble. Now how do you stack them? And then you have to go and figure out the new, how whatever it is to stack them. And you give the new answer, and it says, great, you did both halves of this puzzle. Well done. I'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye. <laughs> Instead of people leaving, they all go on Reddit and yell about how cool the answer that they found was, or now the visualization that they made with the crane that stacks the six-foot-tall marble columns, whatever, and off it goes until the next day when the next puzzle comes out and we do it all over again 25 times. Awesome. You have just gone over a lot of different things, and we're going to go and break all of that down one question at a time. But the first follow-up that I really want to ask you is not how you started Advent of Code, because that's very well documented, but I'm curious why. I like helping people become better programmers as a tangential interest to teaching more broadly. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy training I've worked in a bunch of different engineering organizations where I've enjoyed teaching specific skills or helping people understand particular concepts or whatever. I enjoy learning. I enjoy asking questions. I enjoy when people can teach me things. And so at some point I said, I would like to help people become better programmers. If I do it one-on-one, -on -one, then I can help one person per time unit. If I teach in a code boot camp or something, I can help like 12 people or 50 people or whatever it is. If I teach at a university, I could teach like 700 people at once, right? If I teach online and it's not something where I am spending a fixed amount of time per person, I can teach an arbitrary number of people. I love teaching people stuff. I love helping people get better at programming. And so Advent of Code was one of a lot of different ways that I've tried to do that. All of the other ways failed miserably and Advent of Code got picked right up. So it's a, a lot of luck involved there as well, but I made it in the interest of just enjoying helping people improve their programming skills, which is, I know, kind of a very specific joy, but it's true. We love making things that help people improve their escape room design and playing. So I don't think it's that far a distance there. I think yours might be more practical in the grand scheme of things. One of the things that I found that I struggle with a lot when I'm learning, for example, like new programming concepts or, or things in that domain is it is really easy to find a programming language, Google top programming languages and pick one. Find a programming language, no problem. It is really easy to find documentation on that programming language. Okay, great. You found your programming language, Google programming language name, documentation. The first hit is the dot, right? You're done. It is really hard to figure out what you should make 
now that you've found a programming language, right? You, as a beginner programmer, have no sense of what project is hard and which one is easy, right? There's an XKCD about this, where this programmer is given a task that it's like, we need you to write a program that'll figure out whether a picture is taken in a national forest. And they're like, yeah, that's no problem. I'll just do a GPS lookup and tell me. And whether the picture is of a bird. And they're like, I'm going to need a research team in five years, right? Because it's a completely, but right, but like as a beginner, if you're going to sit down and say, I'm going to learn this programming language, I'm going to practice some stuff. Let me tackle a problem. Knowing even what to begin on and what to tackle on is, is, is impossible without finding somebody who can already know and can already tell you or trial and error, right? There's no way to discern the nature of difficulty in software as a beginner without a lot of extra effort. Giving somebody on a silver platter here is a problem that I promise will be pretty easy, right? It's not going to be trivial. It's not going to be automatic, right? You will have to do some assessment and some thought. You might have to look up specific skills in that documentation you just found a second ago. You might have to look up, like, how do I take a sequence of letters and reverse it, right? Or you might have to look up, like, how do I get letter number seven out of that list, or right? Something like that. But now that I've given you some bite-sized problem that is within your grasp that you can do, now you know what to tackle, and you have a reason to tackle it and a reason for those concepts to actually stick in your brain. And somebody else has gone and presented it as this is achievable for you. So you go in knowing that this isn't a bottomless pit. I'm also just laughing because there's an XKCD about is the programming equivalent of Simpsons did it. Yes. What's an XKCD? <laughs> XKCD is a webcomic about a lot of STEM topics and also broad general nerddom. They're comics where if you get it, they're hilarious. And also it's entirely possible that it's about some area of programming or science or engineering. And you look at it and you're like, this must be funny to someone. Wow. I thought I was a nerd whisperer, but I'm like way over my head. <laughs> PG, I guarantee that you have seen an XKCD comic somewhere yeah. at some point. You've been on the internet a very long time around <laughs> a lot of nerds. Anyway, <laughs> let's get back to Advent of Code. You have puzzles that are also part of a larger story told over 25 days. Slightly different structure, but it sounds familiar enough to an escape room person. I want to try and break this down further. What is a programming puzzle exactly? Yeah, one of the requirements to having an advent of code puzzle in my design process is there must be one answer that I'm leading you toward. There are different inputs. So every puzzle comes with a prompt, but it also comes with some kind of input data. There's a puzzle where you're in a, I think a train station or an, uh, an airport or something like that. And you drop your ticket on the ground and there's like a pile of tickets that you find. And so you have to pick up all these tickets and say, which one is yours? You know, it follows certain criteria, right? Like page through all these tickets. And so the prompt is telling you how to find your ticket. The input is here are all the tickets you found. And different users get different inputs. They'll get the same prompt, but they'll get different inputs. So you'll get the same instructions on how to sift their tickets. You'll get a different list of tickets. And so for each input, I have to lead you to precisely one answer. And the moment you type that answer into the box and hit done, and it says, good job, you win, you're finished, right? With that half. So there's two halves. This is really clever. So the data set is unique to me. Everyone has the same prompt. They're all getting a different answer at the end, but the software knows that they got it correct based off of the inputs that are listed for them. 
So you'll be sitting next to somebody and you'll both be working on the same puzzle because they come out at midnight on the day of whatever. And you'll both be writing software to sift through tickets, but the tickets you're sifting through are different. And your ticket might be number seven and their ticket might be 385,000 or something. And it'll vary depending completely on what your input data is, which means that you can't just post, oh, the answer to day 25 is seven because it's only for you. It won't be for everybody else. So this was to circumvent cheating. Yeah, it helps to discourage people from just copying from one another and to tackle the problem themselves and to feel like they're solving their own problem, their own situation, rather than feeling like they're solving the same situation and someone else has already solved it. What's the point? Are these usually presented as text or are they sometimes an image or like? <laughs> the whole website, frustratingly to some people and delightfully to others, is completely text. There are no images. When I was running advertisements early on, there weren't even images in the advertisements. And not only is it text, it's all monospace text. Just because I'm a giant dork and I like old terminals and monospace fonts and things like that, I'll put up diagrams, but the diagrams are all written in text-based ASCII art slashes and lines and dots and Xs arranged in a grid, and that's the diagram you get. So you're a nerd with respect for the classics. Yes. Hopefully, <laughs> depending on who you are and who you ask. But <laughs> how does story and progression factor into Advent of Code? The story every year is different. And it's also not written ahead of time. I build the story as I build the month. So I don't actually know where it's going when I start. I have a couple rough ideas for story points and things, beats that I want to hit at certain moments or things that I think would be cute or whatever. But the story starts with some goal. You have to get 50 of something for some reason, because there's two parts to 25 puzzles, so you need 50 of something for some reason. And there is some motivation for you to do it by Christmas, typically, because if you don't do it, then Christmas will be ruined forever, whatever the plot is. Lots of dumb tropes. And that year, for whatever reason, you need 50 of that object, and if you don't get them, everything will be ruined. And so you go on some grand adventure to go and get all of the fruit. Or one year you needed to get 50 coins that had stars on them so that you could pay for your hotel room because you were going on vacation. Just like completely preposterous setups that have just the loosest basis in reality. So silly save Christmas. Got it. Typically, yeah. <laughs> if I could solve puzzles and get coins to pay for my vacation, I'd be way into that. I'm excited to report that Advent of Code has that theme. <laughs> One of them was you're shrunken in a computer and you have to find 50 of something in order to reboot the printer. I forget even what the theme was that year. One of them was you go to the bottom of the ocean and so every year you move down a certain number of meters in the submarine and then you help animals and they give you signal boost or whatever to get the keys. I, I don't remember. They all blur together. Okay, so you have basically like a framework for the overarching story, but then each individual puzzle is a little snippet, a little part of that quest. Yeah, and all of the puzzles are, there's a fancy term for it, but basically like short moments in some larger story. It's not like the moment the last puzzle stops, the next puzzle starts as if it's like a chapter book or something. Because it's a 25-day event, typically, right? And so it's told as if you're spending 25 days doing some activity. And so it's like, oh, you're walking down this path, and all of a sudden you encounter these monkeys who are all stealing your items and throwing them around. And then the next day you're, you know, walking along a river because that's where you've gotten. And there's a, a calendar that goes along with it. The, the advent calendar, in this case, is a big list of days. And as you fill it out, as you finish each puzzle, 
parts of the calendar light up. And so usually the story for the day also has to do with like where physically on the calendar you've just clicked on. The calendar turns into ASCII art also. The calendar is ASCII art the entire time. That's true. (laughs) The calendar is ASCII art just to stay in the theme because I don't have any images. So I have to do ASCII art somewhere. I love it. All of this sounds incredibly niche to me, but I know that Advent of Code is incredibly popular. So what is the scale? How many people participate? I believed it was going to be very niche as well, which is why we've had scaling problems most years, because every year the number of people that we have doubles or triples. And like, where are you all coming from? Also, hello, welcome. Please learn some programming. I hope you enjoy these puzzles. So the first year. I was only expecting like a couple of my friends to do it, and it was going to be a little cute event that I ran for a few people that I know, and that would just be it. And instead, what happened was they told their friends who told their friends who told their friends who told their friends, and all of a sudden, I've got 50,000 of my closest friends (laughs) doing the puzzles on this weird website that I put together, right? I was expecting, I think my high-end estimate was 50 people, and so just for safety, I figured I would give myself a really wide margin, and so I gave myself an extra like 50% margin on top of that. So 70 people was about what I was expecting. Ah, No problem. Yeah, right. No problem at all. 70 people was the high end. And instead, 50,000 people ended up doing it that first year. That's not going to incinerate your servers or anything. It incinerated my servers. (laughs) (laughs) My behind the scenes talk that I give, I go into length about the technical problems that we overcame to try to get it all working and stuff. Fortunately, my day job is running a lot of servers. So it wasn't really a problem. It was more of just a surprise. We will link to that talk in the show notes. I've watched it a few times. It's very good. So I've got actual numbers to answer your question here. I just ran some database queries to figure it out. We have had 1.1 million people sign up, of whom 730,000 people have solved at least one puzzle. And last year, 280,000 people have solved at least one puzzle. That's crazy. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing escape rooms, haunts, and other immersive social outings. And Morty is now available for all to use on its fantastic website experience, iPhone app, and its brand new Android app, available now on the Google Play Store. I believe in Morty so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. In my non-escape room life, I have worked in digital marketing and just the web space for a long time. And everyone who has spent any amount of time in this space knows that promo codes matter and promo codes help you stand out. And Morty can certainly help you out with that. Yeah, David, you know, the only thing I love better than playing escape rooms is knowing I got a great deal on playing escape rooms. And I'll if there's a promo code, I'll probably be there to use it. Yeah, it just makes sense. If your company has any kind of promo code and they want to appeal more to more to users, it just makes sense to throw it onto that app and get more customers that way. You can learn more at morty.app slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. 
So for scale, one of the most famous puzzle hunts that I know of is the MIT mystery hunt. And I looked online and granted, this is an in-person hunt, so there's more restrictions on it. But I think they get on average anywhere from three to 6,000 players per year. Some people might come at me. This is just from a quick Google search. (laughs) It is an in-person event, but people do participate remotely. Yeah, I benefit a lot from being online. People all over the world, every country participates. And they can do it from the comfort of their own couch or bed or workplace or whatever time of day it is for them when they do it. Yeah, the the being online is definitely a boost. We've talked about what a coding puzzle is. I'm curious, what makes for a good coding puzzle? So the things that make a good puzzle are you need to avoid ambiguity, which turns out to be really difficult. And it's one of the main reasons I have beta testers that go through the puzzles. It is way, way easier than I ever expected to write a sentence and then have every other person interpret it a different way. I'm sure in school firm design, that is, happens all the time, right? But like, say, welcome to my life as a yeah. writer and an event organizer. And like every time I write something and I think this is the clearest sentence I could have possibly written. And then so many people find so many magnificent ways to show me all of the different ways I'm an idiot. Yeah, and unfortunately, in Advent of Code, not only do they uh, find those different ways, but it also prevents them from getting the right answer because they understood a sentence differently than how I wrote it. And there are language barriers, and everybody's half awake because it's midnight in my time zone. It is very hard. So that's part of the reason why beta testers are important, because I tell the beta testers, please deliberately misinterpret everything I write. Please show me all of the ways that this could be confusing. Fortunately, I also have the advantage of being able to provide concrete examples of solving toy inputs for the puzzles. So every puzzle I try to provide a full description, and then I try to provide an example, like the tickets that we are searching through in the airport. Here's an example where you're only searching through three tickets. Let me step-by-step show you precisely how I'm going to go about doing this. All right, here's a thousand tickets. Good luck, right? Go do it yourself now. So I get to avoid a little (laughs) bit of ambiguity by giving these concrete examples of doing it step-by-step and describing why I'm doing it and which step I'm following and how all of that, whatever, right? Ambiguity is really hard. Another one that's really tricky is that because the goal is to help people become better programmers, I need to assume that the people doing it are beginners, right? They're not all beginners, of course. We have experts that do it too, and that's totally fine. But it needs to be accessible to beginners. And in order to be accessible to beginners, I have to assume that they haven't really taken a computer science curriculum before, which means that I have to avoid using computer science terminology, even if it's the standard terminology for whatever domain I'm working in, right? I can't ask somebody to implement a B-tree and then say, okay, bye, have fun, right? That nobody knows what a B-tree is. I have to at least assume that they don't know what a B-tree is. Or that they just don't have the same background as I do in whatever thing I'm talking about. So I have to make sure that if I explain something, I need to explain it in a way that somebody who is a programmer, but a beginner could ingest the information and hopefully make progress on it, or at the very least, know what to ask questions about if they have a friend or even just like a search engine where they could type something in. No, I get you. That's basically my job on this podcast is to make sure when David uh, and the guests get too technical, I got to like pause and be like, can we describe what that means? (laughs) Yeah. And in software engineering, it is extremely common to just get really deep into very obtuse terminology and lots of acronyms. And if you do that, it just becomes an impenetrable wall. You can't teach like that. When I started working in tech, 
I knew absolutely nothing. I had spent a couple of years learning how to code, but I didn't know so much. And I had a notepad and I wrote down every single word, every single acronym that anyone had used over the course of the day. And then I would go home at night and I would sit there reading about these things until I felt like I could use them comfortably in a sentence, possibly better than the person who used it when I wrote it down. I still do that. Yeah. Oh, I still do it too, but I have to do it a lot less. I I have been in this domain for many years and I still run into lots of words I don't know and I still go research them. That is everybody. Yep. Oh, for sure. I also still run into people who are using those words wrong. I mean, yeah, that's... (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I have come to learn about puzzle design is that for each sentence in the prompt, there is at least one person who read every sentence except for that one. (laughs) Which means that if there's something important, I need to either highlight it or call it out several times or write the puzzle in a way where if they missed some detail, they will fail early enough that they'll realize that they're missing something or something like that. But it is very, very common for people to post asking for help only to realize that they have neglected a single detail that is right in the middle of the puzzle text because I failed to call it out a sufficient number of times that they definitely ran into it at least once while they were skimming or something. And it also doesn't help that a lot of people do it as a speed contest. And so they're deliberately skimming anyway, but we're going to get to the speed contest (laughs) stuff shortly. My goal is to make it clear and unambiguous because they already have plenty of challenge in the writing some software to do the thing they now understand that I don't need to give them bonus challenge, not understanding it, unless that's part of the puzzle. Sometimes the goal is figure out what I mean. I've given you enough detail, but I've hidden it in the inputs or I've hidden it in some description of someplace else, or I'm ambiguous, but in a way where only one of those ways makes sense due to some other part of the puzzle. And you have to work out which one it is and why, but I don't do too many of those, but it's an important skill. Buzzshot is escape room software powering business growth, player marketing, and improving the customer experience. They offer an assortment of pre and post game features, including robust waiver management, branded team photos, and streamlined review management for Yelp, TripAdvisor, Google Reviews, and Morty. Buzzshot now has integration with Repod sponsor Cogs for all of your technology needs. Stella from The Room in Berlin says that since using BuzzShot, we constantly receive at least 30% more TripAdvisor reviews than before. And for those American listeners, TripAdvisor is a pretty big deal in Europe. Streamline your marketing and grow your escape room business. Repod listeners get an extended free trial and 20% off your first three months with no setup fees or hidden charges. Visit buzzshot.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to learn more. Link and details in the show notes. Looking at the solve stats for last year, 2022, The difficulty certainly ramps up. It looks like about 266,000 people solved the first puzzle fully and about 13,000 completely solved the final puzzle. How do you approach straddling the line between making puzzles for beginners and for experts? That is an excellent question. The first answer is puzzle difficulty is not a single number. 
what I mean by that is that the amount that you struggle with a puzzle depends entirely on your background in programming and not, your ability to do problem solving, your prior experience, whether you've seen a puzzle of that category before, and then maybe how complicated or involved it is, which is just some sort of multiplier on all of those things, right? I have beta testers who are career software architects and have been doing this forever. And I have beta testers who are Spanish and French teachers who are just very good at puzzles. And the things that they struggle with are wildly different. Some of the hardest puzzles in the set, the person who's a really good problem solver get right away. Oh, I need to do this and I'm going to have to tackle it like that. I don't know what the code is for it, but I know I'm going to have to do those things in that order. All right, I'm going to tackle this and figure it out. Whereas sometimes the people who have been doing this stuff forever say, I know that this is going to involve this data structure and this algorithm, but I don't really know how to apply those. And they'll go down a rabbit hole where they never needed to do any of that stuff to begin with because they didn't see that there was some other solution. So my first point to make on this is difficulty is very variable, depending on your background and who you are. Given that, I often focus more on variety and complexity rather than some metric of raw difficulty. I do ask the beta testers how difficult they thought a puzzle was, but that's more guidance than a hard number that I use to just sort the list and be done with, right? I will try to make sure that puzzles that are very similar aren't right next to each other. I try to make sure that puzzles that are very involved land on not a school night, basically, like a Friday or Saturday nights that people have extra time to stay up if they want or extra time the next day to work. And I also will put puzzles in that are easy later on to give people a break and harder earlier on to give people a taste of what's to come. I'll put in puzzles that are an easier version of a later puzzle to give them the practice that they need to break into a subject. So when they see the one later on, they say, this is really easy. I already did a puzzle like this when secretly, no, you just figured it out and taught it to yourself. And now you're tackling this puzzle you would have never dreamt of tackling before because I, I tricked you into learning a thing. Social engineering at its finest. Right? I have all kinds of techniques like that that I do. How do I decide how many to do or what to fit in varies more year to year based on what kinds of skills I want to teach and the order I want to teach them in. Because every year focuses on two to five maybe specific skills that I hope that by the end somebody will pick up. But if those tend to be harder to teach or more involved to give puzzles for or tend to be more time-consuming puzzles to solve, then the pacing will vary a lot and the number of puzzles that are easier or harder will vary depending on what I can fit in and where I can put it and where the weekends land and how many of some kind of a puzzle I need to make sure somebody's going to be comfortable. What is your average expected solve time? Like when you sit down to design a puzzle, is there a target time you're hoping that the average hits? Not really, because it totally depends on the person. Very broadly, I hope that a beginner could solve the beginner puzzles in, I don't know, an hour to a couple hours. Often they'll solve it much faster, but sit for a couple hours and work on it. My hope is that people don't spend that long, but like a complete beginner tackling something that they've never, ever seen before, I could see them taking that long. Whereas an expert on one of the very complex puzzles toward the end of the year could take the same amount of time, but for completely different reasons. I'm asking this because part of your solver community are competitive programmers, which is something that I just learned was a thing. Yeah. So the competitive programmers are a very different class of human. 
Yeah, I'm just looking at all of the leaderboard times for 2022 and the shortest solve for first place on a puzzle was day one at 53 seconds and the longest of the top billings on a leaderboard was on the 22nd day and it was 25 minutes and 56 seconds just adjusting for how difficult everything was both of which seem inconceivable to me yeah so those are all absolutely inconceivable the first thing that i want to say is that the people that are using advent of code as a speed contest are not using the skills that a career software engineer would use at their job it is a different skill set entirely so even if these people are career software developers they're applying a different skill set here than they would if they were at work correct and many of them are also career developers oh i know i stalked some of them the person on top of your leaderboard at the end of all of it is beta veros or brian chen who is one of the creators of the galactic puzzle hunt yeah so known person in our puzzling world sometimes after advent of code some of the top solvers have actually gotten to have a voice call and they'll invite me and jump on and just talking to those folks is really interesting because the way that they approach solving puzzles isn't really how i approach my mental model for how a solver is going to tackle the problem while i'm designing it right because my primary goal is education not speed contests but people want to do this as a speed contest and so by all means have at it but when they tackle these puzzles we get a lot of comments from people saying i can't even read the puzzle in 58 seconds how did they solve it in 58 seconds and the answer is they didn't read the puzzle what they will often do is they will go and look at the input they will see that it's a sequence of numbers with plus or minus and they will immediately go write a program to add up all of the numbers plus and minus and see what they get and while they're writing that program with one eyeball the other eyeball they're using to skim for important keywords in the puzzle and if they spot the word multiply they'll pause for a second and see what's going on and then they'll go back to writing and then maybe they'll skim down to the example and see like yep i just added up some numbers add up the numbers hit the submit button they've already submitted it's only been 58 seconds whereas the people that are reading the story and saying okay I understand now what I need to do. How would I build a software system that achieves this goal? Right now, at no point does any of this occur. So if you're tackling it from the point of wanting to practice being a software engineer, you will presumably build sane, reasonable code that gives you practice designing solutions to problems, that gives you practice ingesting a requirements document, right? Whereas the people that are doing it for a speed contest say, what's that? Add some numbers? Done. I've added some numbers now, right? Like it's not the same set of skills. Yeah, it's completely bonkers. And for a long time, we got lots of accusations that people were cheating, that they were somehow getting the answers earlier. They had hacked in and downloaded the inputs. And that was quickly solved when people started posting online videos of themselves solving it with a screen capture and reading the puzzle and going through the things. And then people like Veda Veros and others that would post blog posts of 12 pages of tips for how to be really fast when you're doing a a fast code puzzle. And it's completely opposite to the recommendations for beginners, because a lot of it is like, don't use any of your normal tools. Don't use any normal programming concepts. Don't use any normal programming approaches. Don't read the puzzle. They take too long. And when you have a beginner and you're trying to help them learn programming to begin with, we say like, use all of your tools, take your time, read the inputs, right? Figure out what the prompt is telling you, right? Sit down and design some software and then solve the puzzle. And it's two completely different types of humans doing a completely different activity. 
because like if you're looking to make software you're looking to go and come up with really sane human readable variable names you're looking to go and comment your code so that when you go back and look at it sometime later you know why it's doing the thing that it's doing or at least you understand what you were thinking at the time yeah one of the heuristics that i try to use when i'm writing good code is i try to say to myself in what ways are the requirements likely to change and how can I write my software in a way that could one day be modified to handle those requirements, right? I don't have to handle them now, but don't design my software in a way that paints me into a corner where if this does change, I'll be really, really in trouble. When you're solving an advent of code puzzle, and especially if you're solving it quickly, you know for sure that the requirements are not going anywhere. The thing you read on that page is the only thing you're getting, and the exact input that you have is the only input you're getting, and you need one answer. There is no reason to make it reusable and effective for requirement shifts or whatever, except that I have part two. But for many of the speed solvers, they just don't care and they solve it and then they see what part two is and they solve that and then they're done. Also, in advent of code, you're not going to have executives change and come in with brand new priorities. All true. So yeah, the speed solving people, there are a lot of people that are beginners and intermediate programmers that are doing it to learn and get better that get frustrated by the speed solvers because they say like, why can't I be that fast? Why am I not that good at programming? And the response that we always give to them is they're not doing the same skill as you. It is like comparing your programming to that NASCAR driver. They're not even doing the same activity. That's also the way that like if Lisa and I are playing an escape room for speed, which we almost never do, the way that we approach that game is very different than the way that we're approaching when we're trying to have fun or we're trying to make sure that our teammates have fun. But there's a way to play escape rooms for speed that is optimizing around speed and no one's enjoyment. And that sounds like it's a very similar structure. Yes. Many of the speed solvers will post videos of their solution. And so you'll have a video of them very quickly skimming, typing a bunch of code, getting the answer. And then at the end, going back and saying, I wonder what the story was about. Let me go back and read. Oh, that's cute. The elves are doing this thing. That's fun, right? But like at no point did they ingest any of the cute jokes or Easter eggs or funny moments. It's not their goal. That's okay. That's the way that playing escape rooms for speed go. You get out of the room super quick and then you're out having a drink later on. And the people sitting with you are like, what was that game about? (laughs) What was even the theme of that room? All I saw were numbers and locks. Yeah, it's definitely analogous. What about for the players who are on the opposite end of the spectrum? Someone like me who barely even knows how to use Markdown. Is there a minimum level of knowledge? Could somebody come in with zero knowledge of programming? And you said people were working it out on like pieces of paper. My mom has solved a couple of them. I have friends that know no programming at all and just use Excel and have solved a whole bunch of them. You don't need to even use programming to solve many of them. There are ones that just ask, like, where on this grid do you end up if you move in these ways? And you can absolutely just sit down with a sheet of graph paper and just move around on it till you find the answer, figure out where it is, and you're done. When you get into some of the more involved problems, the possibility space opens up to the point where you need to be doing some kind of computer something. The numbers just get too big. The space that this would take yeah. up to do it manually becomes impossible. Or there's some task, but I ask you to do it a billion times. A computer's very good at doing things a billion times, but if you do that on paper, you'll be here forever, right? At some point, it becomes unmanageable to do those sorts of things, but for the early problems, you absolutely can. The one that I joked about with using word count in Microsoft Word, that's actually how my mom solved one of the puzzles. She actually did that, and it worked, and she got the right answer. 
All right. So there's no one set programming language that is the only thing you need to solve this puzzle is you have to have knowledge of this. You can use any programming language, any method. Yeah, correct. And in fact, that's absolutely by design. The only thing the website asks you for is the answer to the question. I don't care about what code you wrote. I don't care about what approach you took. And I mean, I do. I want to learn all about it. I love hearing about people's solutions. But like I, as the website, all I want to hear is that number at the end and that's it, or the word or sequence of letters or whatever it's asking for. And people will post solutions that take all manner of different approaches. And it's so much fun to read through all of these different solutions and to just see, I don't even see how you approached it in this way, but you're getting the right answer. Let me learn this new technique or this new strategy or this new programming language or this new whatever. And very often people will ask me, can you post your solutions so I can see the right way to do it? My answer is always, there isn't a right way. Or people will say, why did you force this specific algorithm in this puzzle? And my response is, I don't know that algorithm. Mm -hmm. I never used it in my solution. I, I have never used that one before. That's very cool because everybody else somehow thinks that's the only way to solve it when I didn't even use it. I've never even heard of it, right? So that sort of stuff comes up all the time where there's such a diversity of approaches that I try really hard to not call out any specific one as the correct one because that would detract from the event and the amount of learning that goes on. I do imagine though that there are, especially in the later puzzles where you're asking people to do something a billion times, there are languages that handle that better or worse. I actually try really hard to prevent that sort of thing from occurring. Basically, there are ways to build algorithms that tolerate large numbers of things, like doing something many times, better than others. There exist algorithms that handle big number situations so much better that you can calibrate the size of these inputs such that it doesn't matter what language you're in. You can be in a language that's a thousand times slower than the person sitting next to you, and you'll both get an answer in a couple seconds if you use that algorithm. And if you use an approach that's slow, like a brute force type approach, you'll get an answer in 12 years. Yeah. <laughs> and the person who's a thousand times faster than the, than the 12 year solution is still not getting their answer for, an, I don't know, a week or whatever. But in neither case is that an approach that will give you an answer in a reasonable amount of time. Whereas if you take an approach that handles that situation in a good way, it doesn't really matter what language you've used, which I was surprised to even find is possible because in some cases I was expecting that outcome, but I can't think of a time where that's prevented me from designing a puzzle that has those properties. There is a line in your FAQ that I adore. It reads, did I find a bug with a puzzle? And your answer is, once a puzzle has been out for even an hour, many people have already solved it. After that point, bugs are very unlikely. Start by asking on the subreddit. I adore this because I have to imagine that you are encountering a lot of people who are not getting the right answer and immediately assume it's a bug. Yes, absolutely. There are two properties of most software engineers, and they are being absolutely confident that you're right and being absolutely confident that you have no idea what you're talking about. And that's both. Every, everybody has both of those, right? Like, it's, it's unstoppable. So we get a ton of people who solve the puzzle thinking they've done it correctly, get an answer that the website tells them is wrong, and immediately assume the website's wrong. The number of times that the website has been wrong is exactly one, and we changed the way that we do beta testing to prevent that situation from ever occurring again. The number of people that I have emailing me 
constantly saying, I found a bug in Advent of Code because here's my solution and it doesn't match the website and it says it's wrong, is astounding. Not only do I have that message there on the FAQ, but I also have it on my personal contact me page. It's like, listen, I see you found my email address, but just in case this is a question about a specific Advent of Code puzzle, please don't email me. A, I don't have time to help everybody. There's a million of you. And B, you didn't find a bug, except in the very, very rare case where you did, and I already know you did because nobody's solving the puzzle. Because I sit at midnight, and I watch all of the answers come in, and I watch to make sure everybody's solving it correctly. And as soon as somebody solves the puzzle, I'm able to exhale finally. I'm holding my breath the whole time. I know how long it's been based on how blue my face has turned. I know when people are not solving the puzzle. And so the options are either nobody is solving it or everybody but you is solving it. So like it's really easy to tell when it's a bug or it's not a bug. And so the answer is always go ask on the subreddit first. Let people on the subreddit go and look at your code and figure out what you've done. And ideally, the people on the subreddit will figure out where your bug is and not tell you, but they will give you a different, very small input that should have an obvious answer, but your solution gives a different answer for that will hopefully lead you to debugging and figuring out what the problem is, at which point people immediately say, oh, never mind, I found the problem. Never. Okay, I'm done. Okay, bye. And like mumble off and wander somewhere else. But I get messages all the time about all kinds of stuff. Or every once in a while, we'll have a year where instead of the days appearing in order from 1 to 25, they'll appear in a different order because the way the calendar works you meander all around it and you have to backtrack sometimes and so there's gaps and then you go back to a previous day that happens to be on a line above the line before. And I get people emailing me all the time just being like, hey, these days are out of order? Like, <laughs> yes. Y yes, that is the order. That is the order they are in. The not, not ordered. But like, I get emails about everything. And so a lot of the FAQ questions are literally just like, I get 20 emails about this a day. Please stop. I don't need this many emails. With a million players... I can't even believe you're answering the emails personally. <laughs> Basically, every email I get feels like a personal attack. I just don't like email at all. <laughs> yeah, I get a very broad range of email. I get a lot of messages about a lot of subjects, and it's extremely overwhelming. So I try to catch a lot of it early and direct as much as I can back to the subreddit. Our subreddit community is so supportive of one another. I can't explain how this occurred. I don't take credit for it, but the people that are on there are so helpful to beginners and experts alike. People post their problems, people post their solutions, everyone gets excited, everybody helps one another, and the fact that I can even route people there and use it as a secondary educational resource that everybody can practice teaching, get more help, that means that I don't have to answer every email, that I don't even get those emails very often, is one of the reasons that I'm able to do it in the time I have. There's no way otherwise. I don't scale up. There's one of me. You don't exist on uh, Amazon Cloud. Right? Yeah. You can't just buy eight more of me and throw them in a data center. So it doesn't work that way. Would be nice. So I know with such a large audience of people playing, I'm sure that the demographic is really varied. But were there any unexpected audiences that have surfaced that surprised you? Yeah. So I get parents messaging me saying, I did this puzzle. And while I was working on it, my kid, my young child, came over to see what I was doing. And I told them that the story involved robots and they were all excited. And we sat and solved this puzzle together. And I was able to share programming with them in a way that I can't normally because it's a bunch of 
white text on a black screen on a terminal or whatever, impenetrable because it's a very in-your-head only kind of activity. And instead, I got to tell them the story, and they got invested in the story, and we sat, we solved the puzzle together and found the answer. I get teachers in all different levels who use Advent of Code as curriculum, which I would have never guessed. There are literally college courses taught that are basically just like problem solving 101, and every week they tackle one or two Advent of Code puzzles. And then the next week, they all come back, talk about how they tackled it, go over some common CS approaches to do that, and then tackle the next puzzle. And that's their homework. I have college classes that have messaged me, like professors from college classes that have messaged me, letting me know that Advent of Code puzzles are their midterm or their final exam. (laughs) No no pressure on you. (laughs) Um, Which is bonkers. I have people who use it for practice solving problems under pressure for the purpose of getting ready for interviews or to learn skills so that they can have a software engineering job, not just the interview, but the whole practice. I have heard of some people using them as questions during interviews, but I feel like that's a bad idea. That's too involved, I think, for an interview setting. I like to use different questions. I think most tech companies do a terrible job of interviewing candidates. I have so many opinions on how to do good interviewing of technical candidates. Step one, don't use Advent of Code style problems for interview questions. (laughs) That's That's a great start. Yeah, so we have a broad range of folks that do it from all ages. I have gotten messages from a mother saying, I just wanted you to know that I had to look up what Advent of Code is because my son, who normally sleeps in and is generally like not a morning person, gets up every morning at 5 a.m. when in our time zone these puzzles unlock so that he can solve this puzzle. And I asked him, like, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm doing Advent of Code, and then went back to his computer. And I had to look it up just to see, like, is this drugs? (laughs) Is he in some kind of a gang? (laughs) This looks educational. I just wanted to message you and tell you thank you that you got my son going in a way that none of us ever could. Like, that's weird. Okay. And did you respond? It actually is drugs. Yeah, surprise. It's drugs. (laughs) Drugs for your brain. No, I, I don't remember what I replied. I get People in a corporate environment who use it literally as corporate training. Every Friday, they all sit and solve some Advent of Code puzzles together. They use it for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I've definitely heard of worse mandatory fun. Yeah, right. So for especially programmers and people who are into programming puzzles who have made it this far into the episode, I imagine some portion of them are thinking a thing and I I just want to put a stop to it because Eric, you make it abundantly clear on your website that you don't want anyone to send you puzzle ideas. Ah, yes. Seeing as how diligent you have been about making sure that this message is delivered, I am delivering it now, but I am asking you, what is the backstory? The primary reason is I hold all of the intellectual property for Advent of Code. If somebody sends me a puzzle idea and I use it, and it turns out that idea, that story or that thing or whatever it is, was copyrighted or that was lifted from someplace, I could get into a ton of legal trouble. I don't really especially like to be under legal trouble. I like teaching people programming with cute puzzles, right? I don't want to deal with that. One of the reasons is I like knowing that I am safe by being the creator of all of this stuff. As long as it popped in from my head, I know that it's safe to use because it's a thing that I came up with. It has actually happened before where I had a puzzle that I was excited about And somebody emailed me suggesting that exact puzzle, and I canned it. I got rid of it completely. I had to write a different puzzle. Please don't send me puzzle ideas. Puzzle ideas are not something I'm struggling with. I basically spend the entire year 
programming random stuff and saying, oh, that would make a good puzzle, and then writing a note to myself. And so when I sit down and start writing puzzles, I start by sifting through hundreds of new ideas for the puzzles from things that I've written down throughout the year. I don't need puzzle ideas. I don't want puzzle ideas. It just makes my life hard. If your email looks like a puzzle idea, I will delete it instead of reading it. Don't send Eric puzzle ideas. If you want some cool puzzles, go do the website. If you want to send somebody puzzle ideas, find somebody else. Or make your own cool programming puzzle website instead and put the puzzle on it. So I see here also that you have built a lot of tools for a variety of games, ranging from Minecraft to EVE Online and my favorite game, League of Legends. So what inspired you to create these tools and how can players make use of them to improve their gaming abilities? Many of those tools are defunct. They existed when I was actively playing that game, doing that thing, whatever, but many of them are no longer functional or compatible. The stuff that I do for EVE Online is still around, but that's mostly because EVE Online has stable programming interfaces that you can just hook into that don't tend to go anywhere. And so it's easy for me to not have to worry about maintaining it. But like my League of Legends stuff has been completely broken for many years. My World of Warcraft add-ons absolutely no longer function. So a lot of that stuff is no longer around. The reason that they exist is because I don't actually know how to play video games without getting distracted by some cool thing I could be programming and then programming that instead. So like (laughs) my World of Warcraft slash played time back when I played in vanilla was probably 20% me playing the video game and 80% learning Lua and building a bunch of add-ons and really getting a kick out of it, even though they were just for like me and my friends, just because that's the only way that I understand how to engage with a video game is by writing a bunch of software to engage with the video game on my behalf. I, I don't, I can't do it otherwise. You have matrix vision when you play video games. Yeah, You're just seeing it all in code. <laughs> I can't not, I can't not make stuff. If I don't make stuff for a while, I just, I get the shakes. The League of Legends stuff that I made, it turns out I am terrible at League of Legends. Absolutely terrible. Solid bronze five. Don't, I can't. So the thing that I built for League of Legends was a match replay analyzer that would let me go and figure out what did I do? What could I have done differently? Tons of graphs, tons of charts, pathing around the map and all of the opponents and where they were at the time so I could figure out why I didn't realize that I was out of position. And it never really helped me get any better, but it was fun to make. It was very fun to make. They have that built in now at the end of the game. They show you all the stats of like what your vision score was, how much crowd control you did, things like that. But these are so helpful. I'm an old school gamer. I used to play EverQuest back in like the early 2000s, right? I played (laughs) a clinically dangerous quantity of EverQuest. I used to have a gigantic binder full of printed out maps. Yes. (laughs) This is so embarrassing. (laughs) So I have not played EverQuest in a very long time, but I still appreciate it. And so I recently made some contributions to a software package that is designed to render the kind of music that EverQuest has bundled with it to your speakers, basically. The format of music that EverQuest has or had at the time And the reason that I contributed to it is because I wanted high-quality renders of the EverQuest music without a very particular flaw that this software package had in it that I wanted to fix. And so I dove in and for a couple weeks taught myself the inner workings of this software package so that I could fix this one bug so that I could get a bunch of clean renders of EverQuest music so that I had it for my own listening. (laughs) 
what I'm hearing is that you were inspired by being annoyed at a lot of glitches that you found. <laughs> sometimes it's glitches. Sometimes I just track down, like when I was playing World of Warcraft, a lot of what I did was find security holes. And I found them just because my brain can't help but see it as a puzzle. Like, I wonder if I can masquerade as a game master in private messages. Turns out, I can. I wonder if I can <laughs> make a link to items that I don't have before there are add-ons that could just do it. Turns out, I can link Thunder Fury Blessed Blade of the Windseeker in Ironforge general chat, and everybody all of a sudden panicked because it hadn't been acquired on the server yet. <laughs> Can you make a tool that will automatically filter out when I start raging and flaming people and it'll just automatically bleep it all out? I had a tool that would automatically filter out repetitive spam in the trade channel. That's close. I had all kinds of random stuff like that. That's awesome. Finding random security holes and bugs and stuff. It's just another puzzle. It's just, oh, and I immediately reported it all to the GMs who immediately reported it to the devs and got it all fixed and stuff. But I can't not engage with stuff in that way. Like everything to me is a puzzle that needs to be like analyzed and figured out from every angle. I can't not do it. Well, I'm sold on programming. Maybe I will try to tackle Advent of Code this year. I'll probably end up doing it in like MS Paint or some bullshit, but I will try and hopefully it'll inspire me to pick up some type of programming. So if I can do it, anybody out there, I challenge you to do the same as well. Absolutely. And when does Advent of Code launch? So Advent of Code occurs midnight Eastern Standard US time on the first 25 days of December. So the moment that the US Eastern clock becomes December 1st, the first puzzle comes out. And when it becomes December 2nd, the second puzzle comes out, and so on and so forth. There are clocks and countdowns on the website uh, a couple days prior. So if you set your alarm for like two or three days before December 1st, you too can jump on the website and see the clock. It'll count down. And what is the website? Adventofcode.com. All right. And what is the best way for people to follow you or connect with you if they want to spam you with emails about bugs? No, I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh. Please do not. <laughs> I do not need more emails. I promise. I have a Twitter account. I use it basically only during Advent of Code to talk to people about Advent of Code. I am Eric Wastel on Twitter. I am also active on our subreddit during Advent of Code as well. And during the rest of the year, I hide in a dark room and pretend that Advent of Code isn't coming and then make puzzles. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Teresa Piazza with support by Lisa Spira. We're edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media. Music by Ryan Elder, logo by Janine Pracht. And all of this is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. You made it to the end of the episode. I'm guessing that you had a good time because otherwise you would have bailed. How about you go and take that good time straight over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Help other people find what we're doing. It really helps us out. And think about who you just helped out by helping them find a podcast that they're really going to enjoy. Go do it. Do it now. Thank you. Well, folks, it is that time. You know exactly the one I'm talking about. It's the one where the desperate content creator tells you, please, please join our Patreon, please. 
I know you hear it from everybody, but it means so much to us. The amount of time and energy and money that we put into producing shows like this to the degree that we produce them and all of the other things that we're doing, it's just takes a lot. And our patrons, every single one of them matters at every single level. So if you have the money available and it's not gonna be a hardship for you, please consider backing us on Patreon. And if it is gonna be a hardship, please don't. And backing us at the $5 level gets you access to the RIA Discord, and it also gets you our bonus after show. The show goes on for like another 40 to 50 minutes usually. A lot of times we have the guests joining us. I mean, that's that's longer than that cup of coffee will last you. At the $15 level, you also get access to our Spoilers Club. Here, we take deep dives into iconic, well-known escape rooms, and we're joined by the creators who come in and gives us exclusive behind-the-scenes, director's cut-style commentary. This is some of my favorite content to produce because I love talking about escape rooms in full. You can learn more at patreon.com slash roomescapeartist link and details in the show notes we'd like to thank our highest level patrons panic room escapism olivier escape jonathan driscoll breakout games derek tam joshua rosenfeld byron delmonico keystone escape games scott olson paula swan rex miller and the ministry of peculiarities thank you for your ongoing support so my cute story is one example of a bunch of things that occurs in advent of code I like to hide Easter eggs, and some of the Easter eggs are, there's a bit of text in the puzzle, and if you hover your mouse over it, a thing pops up. But I also hide things more deeply as well, and sometimes people find them. One year, I had a puzzle that involved describing humans, including their hair color, and the hair colors were all given as RGB hex codes, basically like how much red, green, and blue is in the color of the person's hair that is being described. And for absolutely no reason, and in a way that had nothing to do with the puzzle, I chose a bunch of real hair colors in real hair color proportions. And all of a sudden, a couple days after the puzzle comes out, somebody on Reddit posts a message that says, hang on a second, I just rendered all these colors because I was bored, and they're all real, what else is in here? And I just reply, I spent more time on this than I care to admit, researching natural hair colors from around the world just in case somebody decided to go and render them. Those kinds of <laughs> tricks are just the most fun because if one person finds it, that's enough. It's good to know your effort didn't go to waste.